right, welcome to episode 11 of The Plan. Uh, if you are visiting us and you're expecting a Thanksgiving sermon, this is not <laughs> going to be a Thanksgiving sermon. Uh, what we're doing this year is we're reading through the entire story of the Bible, and we're looking at it as one single story that is uh, one plot drives everything from Genesis to Revelation. We're wanting to understand that story because that's the story that we are invited into as Christians, and it's the story that we invite others into when we share the gospel. And what we've been finding as we, as we go through the story is that the Bible is the story of God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. God created the world, and he put human beings in it, and he gave them the, the purpose of ruling on his behalf. And then on the seventh day, he, he came to rest in the world with them, and then human beings messed it up. And so in, later in Genesis, God starts this project to restore his plan to humanity by working through one family. He chooses Abraham and Sarah and their descendants to, uh, and he's going to give the, establish the plan with them for the sake of all the rest of the nations. He says, they will, all the world will be blessed through them. And so as we've been going through the story so far, what we've found is that God has been putting each one of these pieces in place. So in Exodus, he saved his people out of slavery, and he would actually use the language when he talks to them, like he bought them, he saved them, so that they are now his people. So that's how he established them as his people, was when he brought them out of slavery. And then he brought them to Mount Sinai, where his presence was resting, and he had them build a tabernacle, and he came down to live among them. And that's how he established his presence among his people. At the same time, he was giving them the law of Moses, which gave them their purpose. It showed them what it meant for them to, to live out God's purposes um, wherever he was sending them. And so he's given them, uh, he's made them a people, he's given them his presence, and he's given them their purpose. The part we're still missing is the place. They still need the place because we're still, at this point in the story, we are in the wilderness outside the promised land. And last week we looked at the, when they came right to the edge of the promised land and they were going to go in, but they lost faith, they didn't trust God, and they mutinied. And God said, and this was, this was one of, you know, 10 different times that this generation just failed to trust God. And so he said, all right, I'm not going in with this generation. You're not the ones I want to go into battle with. I'll take your kids in. And now as we go into Joshua, that's the generation that we're looking at. So the, the old generation has passed away, now the younger generation is ready to go in. And so I'm going to read you the beginning of the book of Joshua, and as I'm reading, this is where you'll fill in your coordinates. So you'll be wanting to watch for people. Who's the story about? Places, where is their home? Presence is how do they meet with God? And purpose is what does God tell them to do? Some of these things you'll fill in just if you are familiar with the way the story goes. But this is how the stage is set in Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river of the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful everywhere you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. All right, who's the story about? 
It's been about Moses and the Israelites for a while now. Moses is dead, so now it's about Joshua and the Israelites. So God appointed Joshua to take over after Moses' death. So we've got a new generation of Israelites and a new leader. Where is their home? It's the promised land, which is just across the border now. They are just about ready to go in. Instead of going in from the south, they're going to go in from the east across the Jordan, but they're, they're ready to go in, okay? How can they meet with God? In the tabernacle. God has a tent in the camp. If you want to go meet with God, you can go down to the tent and meet with God. He, he, you can make an appointment to worship with him, to experience his presence, okay? Finally, what did God tell them to do? Now, I find in my experience there's two things that people preach on when you preach through Joshua, because everything else is hard to preach. Uh, number one is chapter one, what we just read, and it's about being strong and courageous, because he says that like eight times. You know, God tells him to be strong and courageous like eight times in that passage. Um, the other one is Jericho. We're not actually going to talk about either of those themes, but it's important to remember he's telling him to, he's not telling him to be um, strong and courageous. He's telling him to do something and be strong and courageous while he does it. What does he need to be strong and courageous while he's doing? What did, he, what did God actually tell him to do? Obey the law. Specifically, obey the book of the law. Now, what's the book of the law? Well, the book of the law refers to the book we skipped over. If you've been keeping track in your table of contents, last week we were in Numbers, this week we're in Joshua, and we missed Deuteronomy. That's because there are no stories in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a sermon. And what happened was at the end of, the, of Moses' lifetime, they're just about to go in. Moses is about to die, but he's, he's, he's actually still in charge of this new generation that's about to go in. He gives them a State of the Union address that summarizes all the laws they've been looking at and also uh, specifically focuses in on what they need to do as they go into the Promised Land. So Deuteronomy has this focus on going on what they need to do once they have the land. So a lot of the laws are repeated because he's summarizing everything again. That's why it's called Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is Greek for second law. But there's also things in there that are specifically focused at um, what they need to do when they actually go into the promised land. So what he's telling them to do is obey those instructions that I had Moses give you. Like that whole list of things I had him give to you. Yeah, follow those. Do it the way I told you to. Now, here's the thing, is that uh, as we're looking at the, the plot of this book, not all of those laws are going to be uh, equally important to the story. There's actually one command in there that is the, probably, arguably, one of the most important commands for understanding the plot of the story. It's also probably the one that we are the most uncomfortable with. But it, it honestly does drive the plot of Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, and 2 Samuel. And that command you find in Deuteronomy 7.2. When the Lord your God has delivered the Canaanites over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Now this command is not talking about how they fight their battles. This is talking about what happens after the battle. So once they've been destroyed, once they've been beaten, uh, once they've been delivered... The, once the enemy has been delivered over the Israelites, the Israelites are supposed to totally destroy them. Uh, the word for that in Hebrew is Hiram. And the plot of, this, of the next four books of the Bible are all going to revolve around whether, uh, whether or not the Israelites obey 
in this command and the consequences of that decision. Now, that makes us super uncomfortable for good reasons. Um, in fact, what could seem more the opposite of the, all these, what the, all these boxes represent than a command from God to totally destroy a people? Um, but that's what he tells them to do, to dis- totally destroy the Canaanites. Now, I want you to write this the way I have it on there, okay? Totally destroy in quotation marks, and then the word Hiram in parentheses. Because, remember, the word of God was not written in English. The word of God is in Hebrew, a little bit in Aramaic, and in Greek. So, totally destroy is the English translation of what God said. Hiram is the word God used. That's going to come back, okay? We're going to come back to talk about that. But for now, what you'll find when you read the Bible is it says, totally destroy, okay? So now that we have the coordinates, we know what God told them to do, we're going to look at the plot of the story of Joshua, what actually happens. And you may notice that this section is very short because Joshua is very thin on plot. If plot requires tension and a question of, oh, are they going to obey or not? Joshua has very little plot tension because this is the most obedient generation in all Israelite history. There's like one time where one guy disobeys God the rest of the time, they, they obey God in exactly what they told them to do. So here is the southern campaign summarized in chapter 10. They come in and they campaign in the southern part of Israel. And it says, Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings. He left no survivors. He totally destroyed, Hiram, all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua subdued them from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza and from the whole region of Goshen to Gibeon. It's a southern campaign. Then he launches a northern campaign to get the the northern part of the land. And it says, Joshua took all these royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword. He totally destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Yet Israel did not burn any of the cities built on their mounds except Hazor, which Joshua burned. The Israelites carried off for themselves all the plunder and livestock of those cities, but all the people they put to the sword until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. So what did the Israelites do? Well, they were very obedient. They attacked the Canaanites and totally destroyed them. Which is interesting because it's the opposite of in Numbers. In Numbers, you really just want them to do what God says, and they keep failing. And in Joshua, you kind of hope they, you don't want them to do what God's told them to do, and they do it. Every time. But surely, we've been talking about how God is uh, merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. So clearly, God's not on board with this, right? So God's going to step in and say, hey, you misunderstood. That's not, that's not what you're supposed to do, right? Except that when we look at how God responded to what they're doing, it says, this is talking about the northern campaign, except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, who we'll talk about later, not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites who took them all in battle. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. So what does God do? God helped them totally destroy the Canaanites. This is a hard book. This is why we normally just talk about uh, Jericho. Because you can make that into a kid's movie. 
Uh, sometimes we talk about the sun sit, standing still, but we don't typically talk about this part. The problem is you can't understand the plot line of, uh, of the story in this stage without understanding what's happening here. This makes us very, very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. And understandably so, because what's happening here is it sounds like God is ordering Sending, uh, giving commands that sound like some of the worst things human beings have done to each other in the last 200 years. Right? This sounds like, you know, we, we read this and we might start hearing words in our heads like genocide and ethnic cleansing and massacres and, and all these horrible things. Well, we're going to talk, we're going to spend the rest, because the story's over, we're going to spend the rest of the sermon talking about what God is actually telling them to do. Okay? and what that word Hiram actually means. But I want to tell you, it's very possible, it might even be likely, that at the end of this, you are still not going to be comfortable with what God told them to do. Okay? I'm not entirely comfortable with these stories. They, they don't make me feel good as I read them. But it's important for us to remember that if these stories make you uncomfortable, if these seem morally, if, if, if massacring whole populations seems morally wrong to you, that is because you have been influenced by Jesus. Whether you are a believer or not, it is because of Jesus that we believe this is wrong. I can tell you none of Israel's neighbors thought what they were doing was particularly wrong. I bet a lot of them thought it was actually rather tame. And what we find, if you trace the history of our morality as cultures and this idea that you shouldn't massacre whole populations, that you shouldn't massacre non-combatants, that you shouldn't do all these things, those trace back to the gospel and the influence of Jesus Christ in our world. So it's important that if you feel uncomfortable about this part of the story, remember it's because you have been influenced, you have been shaped by where the rest of the story goes. And if we were to throw out the story because we were uncomfortable with this part, we would lose the foundation that teaches us that we shouldn't behave in those ways. So it is the Bible, it is Jesus Christ who teaches us to love others, who teaches us not to, that, that these things are, are, that war crimes are crimes. That comes from the gospel. That being said, I do want to take a closer look at what God is actually telling them to do because it's important for us to understand and not to automatically import our modern ideas and our modern ways of reading documents into what's happening here. The first thing that you need to know is that the word Hiram does not actually mean totally destroy. It is very difficult to translate, and so it's understandable that if they have to translate into a simple phrase, they would use totally destroy, but that's not actually what it means. And the thing is, even if you don't know anything about Hebrew, you will be able to see as you read inconsistencies that would lead you to conclude that it must not actually mean totally destroy. For instance, that first verse, uh, Deuteronomy 7-2, where he tells them to totally destroy the Canaanites, here's the next verse. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. That is a strange command for a people you're supposed to exterminate, right? If you follow the first one, the second one should be impossible. And yet, it says, Hiram them, totally destroy them, and then don't marry with their kids, right? You would also, if you, if you really track with the passage that we've already read, we've already seen one, another inconsistency. It says, 
in the northern campaign, Joshua took all these royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword. He totally destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, recommended. Had commanded, not recommended. Wow. <laughs> commanded. Yet Israel did not turn, burn. Wow. Okay. Yet Israel did not burn any of the cities built on their mounds except Hazor, which Joshua burned. So they totally destroyed all these cities, but they only burned one of them. You see that? He's supposed to hear them, all of them, but he only actually burned one of them to the ground. So somehow he hear them to the other six without actually totally destroying them, without burning them to the ground. And here's another one. Describing the southern campaign, it says, Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron and attacked it. They took the city and put it to the sword together with its king, its villages, and everything in it. They left no survivors. Just at Eglon, they totally destroyed it and everyone in it. Okay, here's a place where you might think, well, clearly this is a complete massacre because not only does it say Hiram, but it also says they killed, they put everyone in it to the sword, right? That's not just one word. That's a whole phrase, right? It's what the sentence means. So, but track with me here. So how many people now live in Hebron? Nobody, right? In fact, the city of Hebron's been destroyed, okay? Then it says, Joshua and all Israel with him turned around and attacked Debir. They took the city, its king, and its villages and put them to the sword. Everyone in it, they totally destroyed. They left no survivors. They did it to Debir and its king as they had done to Libna and its king and to Hebron. How many people live in Debir? And, and is Debir still standing? No, there is no Debir anymore. There is no Hebron, right? Okay, this is during Joshua's military heyday. But then if you fast forward to Joshua 15, at the end of his life, when he's done campaigning, it says this. In accordance with the Lord's command to him, Joshua gave to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, a portion of Judah, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, which shouldn't exist anymore. But maybe it's just the ruins, or maybe the city's still standing, but all the people are dead, right? From Hebron, Caleb marched against the people living in Debir. How many people should be living in Debir? Nobody, right? Here's the thing. First of all, Hiram doesn't mean totally destroy. Second of all, what we find about all ancient documents from the time is that they write accounts of warfare in exaggerated language. We have a couple of documents where the Pharaoh of Egypt claims to have totally wiped out Israel. And we know that never happened, right? But they use exaggerated language to make a political point. Kind of like if I were to say, man, Jack killed me at chess. I have no idea. I've never played chess with Jack. But I'm terrible, so it's likely he could. But he didn't actually kill me, right? So that's not true in a literal sense. It does still communicate something, right? It communicates something different than if I had just said he beat me. If he killed me at chess, it means he humiliated me. It wasn't even close. And you feel the emotional significance of what happened or the experience of what it felt like, right? So that exaggeration is meaningful, but it's not actually a literal description of what happened. That's what we find happens over and over again with descriptions of warfare, both in the Bible and in the cultures around them at the same time, is that what they're describing is the impact, the significance of what happened, not the actual on the ground, like if you had a camcorder, what you would see. So for all intents and purposes, they destroyed the whole place. But it doesn't necessarily mean they killed every single person. So even when you have that language that says all who breathe or exterminate, that's not necessarily what it means. And we, what we find consistently is that later on those people will come back and they're, they're still there. So it's, it's got to mean something else. So then the question is, what does Hiram actually mean? 
Well, Hiram actually means uh, totally dedicate to God's use. That's what the word actually means. And the first signal, if this, is, this is one where you would need to actually be looking at the Hebrew to detect, because in, in the difference is, the meaning is so different, they translate it differently. In Leviticus 27, there is, uh, they're talking about property. And if you, if you were to give land to God, dedicate land to God, um, normally, every seven years, all the land is supposed to reset back to the people who originally own it. But what this law says is that when the field that you've given to God is released in the Jubilee, it becomes holy, like a field hiramed to the Lord. It will become priestly property. To hiram the land doesn't mean destroy it. What it means is that you're never getting it back. Because hiram is a step beyond just like giving something to God for a certain amount of time. It is, it is totally dedicated to God for all time, and I can never take it back. That's what hiram actually means in every case that it's used. So they never destroy this field. It just gets worked by the priests, and, and the, the proceeds from it goes to the tabernacle. And as you trace through the, the events that happen in Joshua, what you will find is that Hiram can mean a variety of things. So, let's look at Jericho. In, in, when, they, when, uh, Joshua, when Jericho falls down, they go in and they Hiram everything in, in the city. Okay? So they destroy probably all of the goods, all of the livestock, because the point is that livestock belongs to God, which means nobody else gets to benefit from it. So the way you Hiram animals is typically to kill them, so that they belong to God and no one else gets to benefit and make money off of them. So that's the way you make sure no one else will ever get it. They, can't, they lacked the technology to destroy the treasure, so the treasure was supposed to get donated to the tabernacle. And then Joshua pronounces this curse over the ruins that no one will ever get to build here again. In fact, if they break this, it will cost them their firstborn. Because the city, the ground is supposed to be dedicated to God, which means nobody gets to build there ever again. Nobody gets to use this land for profit. It belongs to God. But he makes an exception. It seems like Joshua does. He's given no permission to make an exception, but he does not execute Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute who protected the spies, and, and, uh, and she believed in Yahweh, and she, she believed that Yahweh was going to conquer the land, Right? So he says, don't kill her. And then it says she became an Israelite. Or it says she, she lived with the Israelites to this day. Now, is Joshua disobeying the command to Hiram? No, because Hiram doesn't mean kill. It means totally dedicate to God. One of the ways you can Hiram a person would be to kill them, to remove them from influence from God's land. Another way would be for them to be incorporated into God's people. So she's still Hiramed. She's not killed, but she is hiramed by becoming part of Israel. There's, another, there's a tribe called the Gibeonites. They're a Canaanite tribe who trick Joshua into signing a treaty with them by pretending that they live far away. And Joshua, when he finds this out, he gets real mad and says, you're now under a curse. Forever you are going to work as, uh, as woodcutters in the tabernacle. It's because he's still applying hiram, because he's dedicating them to God, but he's not killing them. And then another way that you can apply Hiram to human beings is to deport them, to drive them out, because that's another common piece of language that's used, is drive the Canaanites out. The point isn't that you're killing people. The point isn't about death. The point is about making sure that the land is dedicated to God. And so when that, when that involves people, you can do multiple things. You could kill them, which happened 
You know, that is part of what's going on. But it also could mean that you are incorporating them into God's people or that you are pushing them out of the land so they don't live there. We have no record of the Israelites actually doing ethnic cleansing where they like chase certain ethnicities down and kill them no matter where they are. They push them out of the land and that's as far as they go. And we can make better sense of this when we when we actually look at this in the context of the plan that we've been talking about. Because what is the plan? The plan is for God to create a place where God's people can live out their purpose in his presence. And Israel, the promised land, is the place. So that means that the mission at this point was to create a place where Israel could demonstrate God's plan. Not because they're the best people and other people don't matter, or that people who believe in other gods are less than people, or anything like that. It has nothing to do with ethnicity. It has nothing to do with any group being better than any other group. It, they're doing this for the sake of the nations because God's project that he's working through the Israelites is to save the whole world. That's why in Deuteronomy, he tells them, observe the laws carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all of these decrees and say, surely this nation is a wise and understanding people. I see the point here is that people, when, when they say this land is the Lord's place, this is Yahweh's place, he lives here, people need to be able to look at that land and say, hey, you know, the people there, they're pretty wise. Like, they, they, I want, like they, they have a, that's a great place to live. That is clearly better than the way we're living. Clearly, God's place is a good place to live. How can I be a part of that? Right, so... That's the point of the plan, is to establish a place where God can reveal himself to the nations. So the fate of all of the nations is at stake in what happens on God's land. Because when you look at God's land, people are going to assume that that's who God is. You may remember me saying something similar about the tabernacle. When you look at the tabernacle, you understand who God is. The same thing applies to this land where God puts his name. That creates a problem with the current condition of the land, which is that the Canaanite culture and worship were completely opposed to God's character and plan. When you looked at the Canaanites, you did not see God. Not because they were worse than the Israelites had been, but because God hadn't given, gone through the same process with them that he had gone through with Abraham and, and his people and his family. But... God is very clear about this. He tells them in Deuteronomy again, he says, after the Canaanites have been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? We will do the same. Pause here. This is one more place where you'll notice that inconsistency. This is after they're destroyed, after the Canaanites are destroyed, but they're talking about them in the present tense, right? How do they worship their gods, or serve their gods, not how did they serve their gods. So these nations are still alive, right? It says, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. The world will know who God is by what they see done on God's property. Right? Right? So what happens to the world if they see God, people on God's property sacrificing children on an altar? What do they think about who God is? How distorted is the world's vision of God? Wouldn't it be better for there to be no revelation at all? 
than for people to think there's a revelation and it says that God wants us to sacrifice our children on an altar? Among the many other things that they did that were completely ungodly. Because humanity had forgotten who God was and what he wanted, and that's why God is restoring the knowledge of him. But that's, the, that's why God is telling them to clear out the Canaanite influences, because the Canaanites do not reflect God. He says earlier in Deuteronomy, it is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not, because you, it's not because of how awesome the Israelites are that the Israelites are entitled to the best land in the world. It's because this is the place I've chosen and the people who are there do not reflect me. And, and when I put my name here, it needs to reflect me. So in order to be, give people a clear picture of who I am, that, has to be, that influence has to be removed. And that's what we see is ultimately the target of, of Hiram is not the people. The point isn't, I don't want those human beings to live. The point is the culture and the influence that is in the land. Because this is, whatever else Hiram might mean in, in any given context, if we go back to the original command, here is what it definitely means. Here is what Hiram always involves when it's applied to the promised land. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me and serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Don't intermarry with them because they will influence you away from me. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession." What Hiram is actually targeted at is this cultural influence that can, that can totally degrade what the Israelites are doing. It's the influence that the Canaanites will have that will tempt the Israelites away from what God has shown them about who he is and tempt them into other ways of worshiping that distort the world's picture of God so that people will end up thinking that the God of Israel is no different from any other God. It is because the salvation of the world is at stake that it matters that they clear out Canaanite influence in the world, in, in the promised land. So God commanded Joshua to totally destroy Canaanite influence in the land so it could be totally dedicated to God's plan. Now, what we get very uncomfortable with, understandably so, is the fact that destroying Canaanite influence meant violence in places. But it's important for us to remember that the point is not genocide or ethnic cleansing. The point is not killing although that is sometimes involved, the point is removing Canaanite influence from the land. And it's also important for us to remember that this is a command that God gives at one period in history. Hiram is not a standing order for how the Israelites make war, and they are specifically commanded not to do this once they're outside of the promised land. He says, when you make war, you start by trying to make peace. And then he says, it's only in with these seven tribes that you practice Hiram. So this is not how God's people make war. This is how God cleared out the land in this particular stage of the plan. Now, this may seem harsh, and I understand that. But it's also important to realize that Joshua makes it sound like they did everything perfectly. When you get into Judges, you find out, spoiler alert, that they didn't. 
And, Josh, and Judges just goes off the deep end into this horrible, horrible, disgusting ending of what Israelite culture looks like. And it's because they did not remove that influence. So the danger from that influence is very, very real. And the salvation of the world is at stake in what's happening here. Now the question is, what do we do with this today? How do we apply this now? Because we're in such a different circumstance. And unfortunately, this, could, this has been used to justify some pretty bad things in Christian history. I think it's been used to justify it after the fact. I don't know that anybody ever actually was decided to commit violence because they read it here, but they, they definitely shield themselves from criticism that way. Here's what I want us to learn. First off, let's start here. Okay? God's plan is to reveal himself to the world through the place where he chooses to dwell. God reveals himself to the world by saying, this is my place, look there and you'll see me. Because of that, whatever place God chooses to dwell in needs to accurately reveal his character. Right? Whatever place God chooses to dwell in needs to accurately reveal his character for that to, to work, for that plan to work. Okay? Now, the problem now for us today is what do we call God's place? Where do we apply this? Because what might happen is we might say, well, America is God's place. This is a Christian nation, so we're going we're gonna to fight to take over this country. Or we might say, no, it was always about Israel, so this means we have to have specific positions, political positions as a church about what's going on in the Middle East. We're going to apply in all these different ways. But to understand what it's really, how this really works today, I have to give away a huge spoiler about where we're going. Okay. As we go into the New Covenant, we find that the language about God's dwelling place changes. Here's a good example from Paul. Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. In this context, Paul is talking about why sexual ethics matter, why it matters what you do with your body. And what he's saying is it matters because God lives in your body. Because your body says God's place on the front of it. And so what you do with your body matters. This was not how the Israelites thought about things. They did not believe that the Holy Spirit was in every person, in every believer. That's because the Holy Spirit came as a result of what Jesus had done into the church at Pentecost. So that has changed. So what that means is in the new covenant, God chose to dwell in his people. So when we talk about the importance of the place God dwells reflecting his character, today we're not talking about a patch of land, we're talking about people. And Paul will bring this same kind of language to bear on what it means for us as Christians to live out our, our mission. In Colossians 3 he says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator." This is where he applies that that language, where he brings in that idea that you put to death your old self. We hear him, we totally dedicate ourselves to God's kingdom. So our mission is to conquer our old selves so that we can be totally dedicated to God. And this is where we as Christians, we bring in that language of totally destroy. 
Totally destroy your old self. Make no treaty with your old self. In that passage, Paul is talking about how they've been doing pretty good fighting against these particular sins. But he says, don't stop now. Keep going. Because you may have been making progress conquering your sexual temptations, but you still need to conquer your temper. You still need to conquer your malice. The way you talk about other people. There are still battles to be fought, and you need to continue fighting them. This is what we as Christians are called to do. And actually what I found reading the, reading the book of Joshua this way, it's actually a really good example of what it means for us to be Christians. Take Jericho, for example. God said, follow these instructions and I will destroy the city for you. Walk around it seven times, blow your horns, yell, and I'll destroy the city for you. And then you totally dedicate that land to me. Which is exactly what God says to us as believers about ourselves. He says, follow these instructions. Repent and be baptized. I will break the power of sin in you. Right? Because yelling at a wall doesn't bring it down. And getting dunked in water doesn't actually wash away sin unless God is in it. So we can't earn our salvation, but we do these things that God tells us to do. And then he breaks the power of sin in us. And then what's left is to totally dedicate that land, that person, to God. That is the mission that we have as believers, is to to fight against our old selves, to fight against our selfishness, to fight against our, our rage and our malice, to fight against everything that keeps us from being able to be the people God called us to be. That's the mission God has for us, and it matters because your, your battle with sin is missional. Your battle with sin and the way you, you win that battle in your life will change the way people see you. And it will change the way you witness to the world and it will change what people see when they look at you and see God's place on your forehead. This battle matters. So as we close, I'm going to ask you to consider taking some next steps. The first one to consider is to give your life to Jesus. If you have the power of sin is, has built walls around you and you are, you are trapped by sin, all you have to do is give your life to Jesus Christ and he breaks that power and he brings down those walls. And today is the best day to make that commitment. So if you want to give your life to Jesus and you're here, I encourage you to come down as we sing our final song. Talk to one of our ministers. If you're online, get, in, get a hold of the church. Um, connect, give us a phone call, connect with us online, or talk to a Christian that you trust. But today is the best day to make that decision. Maybe you're looking to get plugged in with a congregation so that you can continue to fight that battle because we aren't called to fight it alone. You can uh, sign up for a Connect class if you want to know more about this church, who we are, and what we do. We, put those, we have those classes on uh, Sunday afternoons. If you're, in, if you're interested in being in one of those, just check the box on your connection card. Another way, next step you can take is to get plugged in with a small group, which is a group of people who get together and fight that battle together and pray together and learn together and grow together. If you want to join one of those small groups, check that box on your connection card. And finally, if you want to join a service team, this is the way that we give back and the way that we continue to build God's kingdom outside ourselves. You can join one of those by checking the box on your connect card. I encourage you to to earnestly consider what is the next step God is calling you to as we stand and sing. Please join us.